Thank you, Praise Band, and uh, thank you for those in the audiovisual uh, booth that can uh, help all of us hear and understand what's going on from the pulpit. And uh, just a, a, a piece here. I think all of you have heard this week that Mary Roberts, uh, Pastor Tom and Mary, that Mary's uh, father, Bill Hope, entered eternity, and Lisa Fredrickson's uh, mom has also uh, entered eternity. Would you bow your heads and let us pray? Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day. This is a day you've made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you for life, and Lord, we we uplift uh, Lisa and Mary at this hour that you might comfort them and during these tender and sensitive moments in their lives that you would uh, heal their hearts, give them the peace that passes all understanding and give them a special presence, Lord, in the days ahead. And so, Lord, for us here at West Highland, we ask that you that you minister to us in a very special way, that this hour, that if there's any hearts that are calloused and hardened, that you would peel back those layers, Father, and that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work. Maybe our eyes or our ears are spiritually closed, and we ask you to open them, that we might hear your truths and see insights and principles in your word that we can apply to our lives. And so we turn this time together over to you, for it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Did you hear about the couple that attended a marriage seminar? They were in their golden years, and it was on communication and knowing about each other a little bit better. And the presenter said, all of you men know what your wife's favorite flower is, don't you? And this one gentleman in the back leaned over to his wife and says, Pillsbury, isn't it? <laughs> what does that have to do with the message? Absolutely nothing. But I hope that uh, when you got up this morning that this was your attitude, that you said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. As I thought about what to, to bring a message on today, I am reminded that uh, I was um, in Casa Grande, Arizona, Back in February, Leanne and I vacation, and I was going through the Psalms, and there was a Psalm that um, uh, just caught my eye, and I had really not pondered it before, and it was Psalm 122.6, and so that's the thrust of my message, and going to need a little help here advancing the next slide, please. So as I thought about these things, it seemed like the Lord wanted me to develop a message. So for the past seven months, I've been working on that. And this week, as I thought about message, I, I kept saying, Lord, there's a lot of things happening in our world, in our church, and is this what you want? And it seemed like every time the Lord drew me back to that uh, scripture. And pray for the peace of Jerusalem is the one that uh, I want to focus on. But as is our custom, and if you are physically able, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word? And I'm going to ask that you um, read it with me in unison. Let's begin. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. 
Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. Thank you for that fine reading. You may be seated. May the Lord add the blessing to the hearing and reading of his word this morning. You know, you want me to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Pastor Jerusalem is probably the furthest thing down my prayer list this morning. In fact, praying for Jerusalem did not make my top 100. Do you know that I have my health, my family, my job, my finances at the top of my prayer list? And then there's the church prayer list. And by the way, if you uh, have nothing to do on Tuesday mornings, we invite you to join prayer warriors who are committed to praying for people in the church and situations and circumstances. And uh, Lord, uh, my friends and relatives who don't know the Lord certainly need my prayers. And you know, Lord, if you gave me a piece of paper, I could probably add probably add many, many things to our list. And uh, you want me to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Our country is spiraling down into the abyss of moral decadence. We need prayers at all levels of government, you know, from the Supreme Court to the President to Congress, and then our state and local governments need peace, and they need our presence, they need our prayers, and the list goes on. I think truth be known that that uh, is probably the posture of most Christ followers and that we don't really give thought to Jerusalem praying for that, but yet we see embedded in Scripture a command. It's not a question. It's not a suggestion. It's not something that the Holy Spirit tells us to do someday or when we get around to it or when it's convenient, or if we feel like it. It's a command, and in the Hebrew, it's in the, uh, the words are constructed in what we call the imperative sense. And it's a command dictated to David under the authorship of the Holy Spirit, and David puts his pen to parchment and wrote, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so we need to do that. It's a very, very interesting verse. Listen carefully. Jerusalem is the only city in the Bible that God tells us to pray for. God does not command prayer for Rome, Athens, Nineveh, Thessalonica, Corinth, Babylon. And the Lord does not ask us to pray for Bethlehem or Nazareth or Jericho or Capernaum or any other city on planet Earth. Why? not because he's not concerned about those people in those cities. It's simply that God's redemptive strategy is anchored in Jerusalem. God's new covenant redemption was to have the beginning in Jerusalem, and its closure is upon Messiah's return, the Prince of Peace, to Jerusalem. And for those of you who like an outline, the outline of my message this morning is basically seven Ps. We want to talk about the person to whom God charged with the responsibility of recording his words. 
We want to talk a little bit about prayer. We want to talk about peace. We want to talk about place, and that's Jerusalem. We want to talk, maybe incorporate Prince of the Air and see how Satan and his cohorts have affected things. We want to take a look at the people, God's people and responsibility that we have, and then a portion of prophecy. Well, let's start with David, the man who God charged with recording his words in our pericope of Scripture today. And all of us remember who David was, don't we? David was a man after God's own heart. You might say, wait a minute, I remember David. Wasn't David the second king of Israel who committed such terrible crimes as coveting after another man's wife and committing adultery? and murder. And he took a census of numbered the fighting men in Israel. How could David be declared a man after God's own heart? Well, I don't pretend to understand all the reasons. God does not tell us in Scripture. But I want to share maybe some thoughts with you this morning as to why that may have occurred. And there's an application here, I think, and it's if God can use David That means that God can use you and I for his divine purposes in spite of all of our flaws and imperfection. And here's a question for us. Are we available and abandoned unto himself that his perfect will and way can flow through to accomplish that which he pleases and purposes not only within your life but with all that you come into contact with? Or are we like a soda pop straw? You take that straw and you bend it in the middle and material, liquids, can't flow through it. We need to be like that corrugated end of the straw that when you bend it, and no matter what, it doesn't get torqued out of shape and it can still be used. Hopefully, that is our lives. And uh, because there's application here, let's take a look at Scripture for some of the reasons as to maybe why David was called a man after God's own heart. Now, once again, Scripture doesn't outline it this way. And it's just some things we think about. I think one of the things is that David had to have faith in God. How do we know that? Because Hebrews 11.6 says these words, But without faith it is impossible to please him, and him is God. And so if he didn't have faith, he couldn't please God, therefore he couldn't be a man after God's own heart. So we know that David had to be a man of faith. And you might say, well, that's one of the reasons. And David's faith is illustrated. Do you remember what he says in 1 Samuel 17, 37? He says these words, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. God had been faithful in delivering David in the past. So he said to himself, God's going to be faithful now, and I can trust God to be faithful in the future. And so are we faithful uh, to God. As a result of David's faithfulness, he trusted God. And he says these words in Psalm 26, 1. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Is that your attitude? Do you trust in the Lord without wavering? You remember what Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not unto thine own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct our paths. Is that you? As we look to Scripture, we also find that David was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. 
Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2 says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. You know, David is credited with writing 73 psalms, and that he was credited for many, many more, and so for over half of the 150 psalms. And regardless of the trials, the tribulations, the afflictions, and adversities, David always claimed God's faithful word. Listen to these words that he said in Psalm 119. For I delight in your commands, because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Notice there at the end, he meditates. He meditates, another dimension here. And meditation means to absorb, internalize, and apply truths and principles to our lives. And here's a question, another question for us, is how much time do we invest on a daily basis meditating upon the Word of God? David goes on to say, Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Another dimension would be that of thankfulness. And if you know Psalm 100, you know that that's usually, of all the psalms, a psalm of thanksgiving. And listen to what David says in verse 4 of Psalm 100. He says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, and praise his holy name. And so embedded in there we find another one, and that's praise. Praise. And did you know that these three words are in the scripture more than any other. And praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Did you know that those three words are a phrase that are used more in scripture than any other? In fact, if you take a look at the last five psalms, they begin with the phrase, praise the Lord, the very first verse. And the last verse of those five psalms end with the three words, praise the Lord. Now there are five other psalms that have the same thing, but Psalm 150 is just full of praise, overflowing. I'm going to share two more, and then we're going to move on of things. David recognized his sin. Do you remember the prophet Nathan called his attention to the sin, and then David, it like hit him like a lightning bolt, a ton of bricks. I have sinned against the Lord. And you know, recognizing sin and admitting sin is the first step in our lives. We need to ask forgiveness and we need to repent. And what does repent mean? Repent means more than just being remorseful or sorrowful uh, or uh, being uh, apologizing uh, for what we've done and wish we hadn't have done it. Repentance is a change of heart a turning from our sinful ways. When we repent, we acknowledge our need for God's compassion, his love, his mercy, and his forgiveness. And Psalm 51, I think all of you know that Psalm 51 is David's confession and repentance. And I'm going to put up on the screen just the first two verses and see if this doesn't sound like something that you and I need to offer maybe on a regular basis. Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. That's what David said. Now, do we have any assurance that David's prayer was heard? Or even if we utter those words and claim them for ourselves, can we have assurance that God actually, in fact, does that? And the answer is yes, absolutely, because we have these words in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, and that's what we just did, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if there was ever any doubt in your mind as to whether or not God hears our confession, our repentance, absolutely claim that verse. Blessed assurance, and we stand on the promises of God for those things. But you know, hopefully we are sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit when we miss the mark with our thoughts, our words, or our deeds, and uh, hopefully we will do what David said and did, and that's simply repent. David was declared to be a man after God's own heart, and here's a question for reflection. Not just those things that I've mentioned, but many others in Scripture. Could God say that about each one of us? John Jeremiah and Betty Lou are men and women after my own heart. You put your name in there, and you ask the Lord what you need to do, not only to be a, after God's own heart, but how can we be more effective for the kingdom work? I thought I might touch base when we talk about prayer for a minute. All of you know what prayer is, simply talking to God, and hopefully you do more than a 10, 15 second prayer that you say before a meal or before bedtime. And uh, I, I'm reminded of a story that the pastor out in Iowa when uh, a big drought had occurred, and the individuals in the church said, Pastor, we've had this drought and our corn crop's gonna be a failure. And would you call for a prayer uh, meeting this afternoon, this Sunday, this afternoon at uh, 3 o'clock, and we're all going to come and, and you pray for rain. pastor said, absolutely. Invite all your friends and neighbors. We're going to have a prayer revival at 3 o'clock. pastor gets up on his pickup truck next to the cornfield. People from all around come. And he looks out over, and the pastor pulls out his umbrella and puts his umbrella up. He said, show me your umbrellas. No umbrellas were to be found. He took his down, said, let's go home. You didn't bring your umbrellas. You don't have faith. And there's a, I'll share this story with you. A year and a half ago, Leanne were on I were on the way to uh, Casa Grande, Arizona. And in Springfield, uh, Missouri, we were uh, caught in a rainstorm. It snowed eight inches that night freezing rain all over the place. The next day I saw on the radar, it looked like a time that we could get on down the road and go to Joplin. But I had this uneasiness in my spirit. So I said, Leanne, let's pray that the Lord would give us direction. And not just direction in our thoughts or our feelings, but God, you're going to have to send an angel if you don't want us to go. You're going to have to send somebody. And so I was filling up the RV coach with diesel fuel and walking around the coach, and all of a sudden a semi pulled in. 
Normally, it was packed with semis and stuff. There wasn't one other vehicle other than our coach there in the parking lot. As I was filling up the fuel, this diesel truck came in, and the guy immediately got out of his cab, walked over to us, and said, where are you headed? I said, Joplin. He shook his head and said, no, no, don't go down there. I just came from that direction. Sheet of ice, both roads. I don't know how I made it here. I said, I do. You're an angel, and the Lord directed you and put you in my path. And we talked about those things. So the Lord used that, and we prayed for him and his, and his family and what he was doing. I'm sure that all of you have many, many prayers, and we'd love to hear how God has answered those things. But you know, for many people, uh, prayer is a last resort instead of their first response and first recourse. Many people pray uh, simply during a catastrophe or a crisis instead of out of conviction and a need to pray on a daily, regular basis. I think all of you have heard uh, uh, pastors talk about Martin Luther, one of those great pastors and theologians and and. Uh, the servant asked him one day uh, what his agenda was. And he said, I'm, I'm packed for the whole day, but I've got to take the first hour of my day and invest it in prayer and ask the Lord's direction. And, and how many of us do that? Have you ever spent an hour in prayer? And so that's what he felt uh, led to do. Scriptures tell us that we are to pray. The Apostle Paul says to pray without ceasing. And because prayers of a righteous person are effective and have great power, prayer changes things, God tells us in Proverbs. He says the prayer of the upright pleases him. He also says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Well, if I were to take a survey this morning and say to you, don't raise your hands, how many of you prayed for the peace of Jerusalem this week? How many prayed for the peace of Jerusalem this month or this year? You might be like me, and I didn't. I haven't. And so that's something that, that we need to do. Well, if we go on to peace, what is peace? Well, all of you know that in Hebrew, we talk about the word shalom. And Lawrence O. Richards, in his expository dictionary of Bible words, says this. In, is, shalom is encompassing wholeness, unity, harmony, something complete, sound prosperity, health and fulfillment, not just the word peace that you and I think of. You know, my personal assessment is that we are nowhere near peace at almost any aspect of our lives. But let me do a little, and that may seem harsh, but let me do a little exercise here with you this morning. I want to mention some words and I want you to see just in your mind if they conjure up peace or conflict, tension, and anxiety. How about if we mention Ukraine, China, North Korea, Russia? Or maybe we talk about the inflation, uh, Twitter, Twatter, Tweeter. Maybe mention any of the individuals in Washington. I won't mention any names. How about shooting down balloons, hurricanes, Volcanoes, wildfires, drought, climate change, go green. Or how about COVID, vaccines, N95 masks, active shooter, gun control, gender pronouns, fake news, reality television, inflation, health care, national debt, cost of living, homelessness. All of those words, do any of them 
does any of them make you think about peace and things happening? You know, we could spend the rest of the message going through words, but that's not the intent. The point is that our environment, our culture is devoid of peace. It seems like tension and conflict and disharmony are, are prevailing. And on a personal level, maybe you are looking for peace. Maybe you are looking peace with God. Maybe you're looking at peace uh, at, uh, with your family, within, or relatives, or those within your sphere of influence. You may be looking for peace in your work-related environment. Maybe, well, maybe we just say it this way. I think all of us want peace. I think all of us want a greater peace than we currently have. Well, what do we know about peace? When we think of peace, perhaps we're thinking of cessation of hostilities and war and being in harmony and, and uh, living with one accord. The absence of strife and contention in terms of world peace, we know that that's never going to happen, right? Because the Bible says not going to happen until the return of Jesus. And the Bible tells us we're always going to have wars and rumors of wars until the Prince of Peace returns to Jerusalem. In my research this week for the message, uh, I read an article that said that the world is filled with conflict, hatred, violence, tension, brokenness, and greed, and that 92% of our recorded history was filled with these things, not peace. And that of the peace treaties that have ever been made, the thousands of peace treaties, the average only lasts two years. Two years. I'm going to, uh, if you've got the back of your bulletin, it has this uh, a responsive reading. I'm going to read the black, asking you to read the red. I think on your bulletin it may be the darker print. And so, the Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. When the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Peace is mentioned 252 times in the NIV. I've just simply selected a few. You may have one that is your favorite. And if you do, I invite you to share it with me. 
And I think that praying for the peace of Jerusalem is most appropriate because the name Jerusalem means peaceful. And the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then we know what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And so the Lord wants us to seek peace and be instruments of peace for his divine purpose. What do we know about Jerusalem? What do we know about Jerusalem? Well, it's the home of three religions, you know that. Uh, we have Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And I thought I might show you something, that in 2008, Leanne and I were in Jerusalem, and uh, this little sidebar here, and normally when we think of the crucifixion and Jesus wearing a crown of thorns, we're thinking of those little things about like that, and they're very sharp, but take a look at the length of these thorns. That happens to be Leanne's hand. Got a great, beautiful hand, don't you think? But the idea is those thorns are longer than her fingers. And we did not see any of the thorns, the short ones, like we think about. And so when you think of a crown of thorns, maybe of this dimension, I think it uh, uh, adds a new perspective there. And while we were in Jerusalem... This is probably the most debated, uh, I don't know how to express it, just a, a, a place of turmoil called Dome of the Rock. And it's on that place, underneath that dome, that they believe Abraham sacrificed or was uh, led to that place to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it's also the place that the Muslims believe that Muhammad ascended into heaven. And a non-Muslim cannot enter that space. On the outside, uh, where you see that one lady taking a picture, I'm going to show you the next picture of this panel right here. And as you take a look at that panel, what does that look like to you? Well, I'll just leave it right there. But Jerusalem is 33 miles east of the Mediterranean, and it's situated away from major roads. It's only approachable from the north and is not located on any rivers, large bodies of water, or easily accessed. And it's 48 square miles. And just to give you some perspective, Detroit is just under 150 square miles. So Jerusalem is a third the size of Detroit. All of you remember Neil Armstrong landed on the moon in 1969. In 1970, he visited Israel. He was a devout Christian, by the way, and he was taken on a tour of the old city of Jerusalem by Israeli archaeologist Mir Bendov. And when he arrived at the stairs leading to the Temple Mount, uh, Armstrong asked Bendov if these were the original steps. And as far as archaeology can determine, and if you look it up on Wikipedia and many others, they believe that those steps are the same steps that Jesus walked onto the temple. And Armstrong said, I have to tell you, I am more excited stepping on these stones than I was stepping on the moon. Jerusalem has been attacked 52 times and has been captured and recaptured 44 times, and has been completely destroyed twice. No other city on the face of the earth 
And even though Jerusalem means city of peace, it has known little peace in the last 3,200 years. It's practically synonymous with violence. Listen to what Jesus says. He said it this way in Luke chapter 13. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you. And Jerusalem is first mentioned in Genesis back in 1418, where it says Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem is Jerusalem. And had that interaction with Abraham. And there are other names for Jerusalem. City of Jebus, uh, City of David, Zion, and Jerusalem. Mentioned over 975 times in the Bible, more than any other city on the earth. And in Genesis 22, 2, we learn another name, Moriah. And the Lord tells Abraham to take his son uh, to the land of Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. And God provided a substitute foreshadowing his redemptive plan and the sacrifice of Jesus. It was a place where Solomon built the temple of the Lord. And in 2 Chronicles, it says this, then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. On where? Mount Moriah. And this is the place where people could bring their sacrifices for the atonement of sin until that perfect uh, sinless Lamb of God came on the scene. Why should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Why? Because God says so. And for those of you who have been through Course 101 in parenting skills, do you remember how you responded when your sons and daughters asked why? And we want our sons and daughters to understand, don't we? We want them to ask questions. That's how they learn. And I always told my students that the people who ask questions usually learn the most. And, uh, uh, but when a child persists in asking why, and your answers seem to be insufficient for their understanding, what did you say? Because I said so. And so likewise, God says so. And as believers in Messiah, we ought to have an interest in the affairs of Israel. And because it's God's nation and as believers, we've been grafted into, spiritually, Israel. And you remember what Genesis 12:3 says? It says that uh, God's going to uh, promise us blessings on those who bless you and curses on those who curse you. And so since Jerusalem is depicted as a center of Jewish life, we need to pray for that city. Maybe you could also say, why pray for Jerusalem? Because God chose Jerusalem. And here's what we have. 3,000 years ago, God says, I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there. And God says, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. And then we have these words. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. Now that's the writing of the psalmist. Then the psalmist quotes what God says about it. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned. Why? Because I have desired it. And uh, by the way, do you remember what city Jesus wept over? Jerusalem, wasn't it? And if we take a look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 
40 and 41, we have these words recorded. As he, that's Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Look at this one. This is rather unique. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And then I was going to share this one. God the Father chose Jerusalem. God the Son cried over Jerusalem. And God the Holy Spirit confirmed his word in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. So why should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Because not to pray is disobedience and a lack of identification with the Lord's priorities. We pray because we share God's loving concern from the lost. We pray because peace is a fruit of the Spirit, and we need to be bearing fruit. Amen? All of you should be bearing fruit. All of us, not you, me. We pray out of obedience. It's the Lord's command. It's strategic to his program. And so we asked, are you aligned with God's priorities? Are you aligned? Praying for the peace of Jerusalem is not only a duty, but also a privilege and a blessing for those who love God and his people. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jerusalem. And Lord, as we continue our lives, may we remember to pray for Jerusalem on a regular basis not as a substitute for the things that need prayer in our lives, certainly not that, but in addition to our prayers, we need to include praying for Jerusalem. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this fantastic and awesome congregation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.